2021, the innovative Houston, Texas-based Apollo Chamber Players released their fifth studio recording with Malice Toward None. title from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, the Sezika Records album tackles politics, identity, and what it means to be a citizen of a nation balanced between an idealized past and a just and multicultural future. The title track, written by Vietnam War veteran J. Kimo Williams, features a stunning performance by perhaps the world's greatest electronic violinist, Tracy Silverman. Tracy Silverman is here with us, along with Apollo Chamber Players violinist and founder, Matthew Dietrich. Hi, Tracy and Matthew. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Max. Great to be here. Honoring the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the Apollo Chamber Players 2021 season opening performance was marked with the world premiere of J. Kimo Williams with Malice Toward None. Juxtaposing the Enlightenment with the philosophies of Abraham Lincoln, the piece weaves together storytelling and social contradictions with calls to action. Tracy and Matthew, in your interactions with J. Kimo Williams, did you get the sense that it was his intent here that politics intersect with art and for no other reason than simply because there's a need for it today, a need for socially responsible music? Thank you for that introduction, Max. And I will say, I think Tracy will agree as well, that the idea for, with Mouse Toward None, for this piece, this commission project, was not this lofty from the start. We did not set out to commission a new piece to change the world. However, the idea originated from a desire to celebrate the 250th anniversary of Beethoven, much like many other artists and ensembles and orchestras were doing in 2020, but to do this in a very unique and different way. Why not add a diverse voice to the mix in the composer J.K. Kimo Williams. Knowing that Kimo loved rock music, particularly Jimi Hendrix, we thought to propose this particular commission idea to our good friend Tracy Silverman. And from here, both Kimo and Tracy, we went back and forth with some ideas. But my charge to them was really at its core for Kimo to write something inspired by Beethoven, a favorite work of his perhaps, keeping it relatively open-ended. And then Kimo really came back with this wonderful and meaningful idea of connecting Beethoven music to Lincoln's second inaugural address and just their mutual ideas of enlightenment. Yeah, well put. As this was a product of the whole social justice movement that was happening right in the middle of the pandemic with George Floyd's murder and all of the demonstrations, I think for all of us artists who are making work at that time, I don't think anybody could look at their work the same way after George Floyd. I think everybody had to reassess what they were doing and everything pretty much for that year of 2020, all the art that everybody I know was creating was seen through this lens of social justice. I put out a record during that time and it was very difficult to even reconcile the idea of me putting out a record at that point. But uh, I did and it definitely had a focus as well through a political lens. (laughs) 
trust that Kimo put into us and Tracy for him to then dedicate the piece to the passing of the late congressman and social rights activist John Lewis, really connecting it to the times in which we live. <laughs> piece, of course, as you mentioned, dedicated to John Lewis. And we're still facing significant challenges with race inequality, both here in America and throughout the world. Many people think these are the problems that are at the root of all of our divisions that we face as a global society. I think to a certain extent, but I think that our music can impart these kind of social issues in a way that's non-threatening to audience members. And despite the lofty intentions of With Mouse Toward None, it is a super fun and cool piece to listen to. It's got Jimi Hendrix riffs, and it's got a lot of heart and soul as well. I mean, you can really feel the arc of Chemo's life experiences in this piece. It's a visceral work, it's an emotional work, and it's also a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think what makes it connect with audiences, what makes it accessible, and what makes it soulful and meaningful to the listener is that Kimo brings the kind of joy that he has for rock and roll as a guitar player, as a Vietnam vet, and as somebody who has just a long history of social activism and is kind of an old hippie. You know, he's got the vibe of just sort of letting the music bring peace and love to people. He tells a story about being in Vietnam on 9-11 and how so many people that he met on the street in Vietnam who were survivors of the war that we fought with them who were just full of sympathy for what the U.S. was going through in that moment, you know, and that was very meaningful to Kimo. He tells that story of the sympathy of the Vietnamese for the American 9-11 tragedy. And there's that same sort of peace and love vibe that he brings to the piece. So I think that's an important aspect of this whole racial view of the piece and of music in general, you're asking, you know, is this the biggest issue in our culture? It's certainly one of the big ones, but I think the important thing that we're doing as musicians is that we're approaching it through a sort of a healing force of music. And I think that's what we think the world needs now, to quote a 60s song. <laughs> Max, we had not heard that particular story until the premiere of With Mouse Sword None this past September here in Houston. Kimo was a little uncomfortable traveling during the pandemic and he sent a video recording and so we had this introduction going on behind us as we were getting ready to play the piece and it was emotional for us. I mean, I knew what was coming, but I think for everybody else and for the audience, hearing that story juxtaposed with this solemn 20th anniversary of 9-11 was very powerful. And again, I think someone with Kimo's life experiences particularly as someone who's served this country, just makes it all the more multidimensional and powerful. Hendrix vibe and Tracy you could definitely fool people into thinking that you're playing an electric guitar yeah <laughs> 
What Chemo is doing in this work, in writing it for me, and which is something that I do in my own compositions and in other works that composers write for me, is to use a vernacular style of playing the violin. A more accessible sound to non-classical listeners. And what that means in real terms is I sound like a guitar. And basically the reason I sound like a guitar and have been sounding like an electric guitar since I got out of Juilliard basically and started building and playing electric violins is that it's an important language. It's the language that all my friends speak. As much as I love classical music and was raised, you know, with Sibelius Violin Concerto and Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky and all of that, none of my friends knew what a Sibelius was. They were all Hendrix fans, Led Zepp fans, whatever, guitar, rock and roll, popular music, our musical culture. This was in the 70s and 80s. But my whole mission in life is to use these contemporary sounds because it's the language of our culture that the audience understands as being their voice, a contemporary voice of electric guitar. So that's the voice that I've been speaking in for many years. And I think it affects people and addresses people because they understand it in a different way than when you're understanding classical music. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you're listening to classical music, it's often an experience of listening to antique music, like going to a museum and viewing a great work. And that's certainly something that everybody should do. But it's different from hearing a pop song on the radio and dancing to it and knowing that that's the song that you're friends love or it's you know it's just a different kind of experience a different kind of language toward none project is really what the Apollo Chamber Players is all about. You and your wife are the violinists in the group, Annabelle, your wife, as well as violist Whitney Bullock and cellist Matthew Dudzik, seem to always be stretching the boundaries of classical music, taking on new genres, integrating new kinds of instruments into your mix, also focusing on how music can work with communities and address political issues and work toward a better society. And you really want to present music for all people, not just the classical music listener. That's very much in line with what we're aspiring to do. We feel that finding one's own identity is a universal human challenge and aspiration, and exploring these kind of meaningful connections between people of different backgrounds, different cultures, different communities, is our way of hopefully creating cultural harmony as a vision. So I think it's also important to note that living here in Houston, Texas, Houston is the city of the future in terms of its diversity. The world lives here because it's one of the most culturally diverse cities on the planet. It's also interesting to note that also kind of a realignment of people power in the United States. In a few years, Houston will overtake Chicago as the third largest city in the United States. I think that's actually a really big deal. With Malice Toward None takes some inspiration from Beethoven, who wished that in his own time musical expression could also affect change. This brings me to the next piece of music we're going to discuss, the Allegretto Gruvando, the arrangement which is based on Beethoven's fantasy from his Seventh Symphony. The piece 
features Tracy prominently. So to start, Tracy, I have to ask you about the line everybody in the world wants to talk to you about from the BBC. <laughs> Silverman is the greatest living exponent of the electric violin. <laughs> well, I'm glad they said living. <laughs> You know, as I was alluding to before, I think most people would be fooled. Tell us a little bit about this six-string instrument. Sure. So, yes, it can sound a lot like a guitar. And again, the reason that I use that sound prominently, as I said, I think the voice of my generation, or at least a big part of the American vernacular musical voice, the electric guitar, that sound of a distorted singing guitar or chugging guitar or whatever. Guitar is just such a big part of popular music music that I don't feel like I can communicate popular music without sounding like a guitar. So that's why I choose to go in that direction some of the time. But the instrument also sounds a lot like a cello because it has six strings, goes almost as low as the cello. So at the beginning, for instance, of that Beethoven, I'm using a clean sound. It's basically a cello sound for the accompaniment. So it's almost like having a whole string quartet in one instrument because when I use a loop pedal, which is what I do in that arrangement, and I do a lot of arrangements, I can play a cello part, then play a viola part, then play a violin part, and kind of record with a loop pedal a full string quartet or an orchestral kind of layered string sound. So I use that sound, I use the sound of the guitar. A lot of times when I'm playing jazz, I'll play with a type of vibrato and a tone that sounds a lot like a saxophone or sometimes sounds like a trumpet because those instruments are idiomatic to jazz. So it makes more sense to speak in that accent when I'm speaking to that audience. I guess my approach with the instrument is that I feel like you should speak in the language that your audience understands. If you're speaking to a rock audience, speak rock. If you're speaking to a jazz audience, speak jazz. Classical audience, speak classical. And I think 21st century string players should be able to do some of that, you know, should be able to speak in a diverse language just as our entire society is becoming more diverse and our music is more diverse. You know, I like to tell kids, we're better musicians when we know and love lots of different kinds of music just as we're better people when we know and love lots of different kinds of people. And on that note, Tracy, too, I think the beauty of your arrangement of this Allegretto Gruvando and a lot of your other music, I mean, Tracy's a wonderful arranger and composer, and again, the beauty in what you do is you created something that's not just electric violin solo and accompaniment. This is a true chamber music piece. Everyone has an equal voice, and you come out and do a cool solo in the middle, but we're all supporting each other, and it's definitely chamber music. Some of the things that you do, you're in front of an orchestra and you're the soloist, and that's great, but I think that utilizing the electric violin as a chamber instrument is yeah. something very novel. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point, if I may just add one little thing. My approach to playing the instrument is that I really enjoy playing it as a rhythm instrument, as an accompaniment backup instrument to be the cellist, to be the inside rhythm voice, like the viola or the violin two-part, as much or more than being the lead player. And that's a big part of what I teach with my whole strum bowing method, which is all about teaching string players how to just jam and how to be a chordal instrument because it's possible for us to do that. It's just different from the way we're taught in conservatories because string playing has taken over the last couple of hundred years a trajectory much more towards virtuosic and melodic playing rather than towards chordal and accompaniment playing as you might hear an acoustic guitar strumming or something like that. It's just not something you see strings doing typically, 
but which we can do, a lot of young players are doing using things like chopping and stuff like that, especially in the bluegrass area. And it's just a new way of playing this instrument that I think has a lot of fertile ground to be explored. And what is something that everyone can do? Everyone can keep a beat. it's a very universal feeling is keeping a beat and we've uh, shown our music video as part of a concert kind of between different pieces on a big screen I wasn't in the audience but I was kind of backstage and I poked my head in and especially in some of the more dramatic moments of the song I could see people bobbing their heads in the audience it was an awesome feeling to see that I mean you know <laughs> well you know you partly know. and we got to give Beethoven some credit for yes this. yeah <laughs> not bad basic material to start with <laughs> yeah always good to have a good song well your method tracy this strum bowing method has been adopted by all kinds of string players it's world renowned and of course you've authored your book how to groove on strings mm -hmm. of course this strumming idea also a very guitar like idea yep so you're a distinguished alumni of Juilliard, and when you got out of school is really when you became aware of the electric violin. Mm -hmm. I also remember when electric violin came on the scene, it was when electronics gained more prominence in the jazz fusion area, guys like Jean-Luc Ponty and Michael Urbaniak. Yep. I was definitely a, a fan of Jean-Luc in the mid-70s when he was coming out with those records. And I went to Juilliard, you know, having every intention of being the next Yasha Heifetz. But I realized when I was there, I like to say I, I left wanting to be the next Jimi Hendrix because I realized when I was there, I really got a first-hand look at the classical music industry and the next big players in that. Because I was in a class, by the way, that had, when I was there in 77 through 80, Jimmy Lynn. Bobby McDuffie, um, Nigel Kennedy, Nadia Salerno, Sonnenberg. There was just tons of big players there. And it was serious. It was for reals. And these people were literally spending eight to 10 hours every day in the practice room. And I was leafing through the Schwann catalog. Now, I don't know if anybody, either of you guys remembers the Schwann catalog, but it was a little catalog that came out every year with all of the recordings in print that you could buy. And you would have to go to a, like Sam Goody or record store or something and order some of the things that they didn't have in stock. That was the way music worked back then. Anyway, I'm looking through the Schwann catalog and I'm going through the Tchaikovsky's looking for a recording of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. I want to see if Milstein recorded it, whatever. And I'm going through five, six, seven, eight pages of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. And I just put the thing down and I said like, who the hell needs another Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto from Tracy Silverman? You've got David Oistrakh. You've got Yaisha. I, I just realized that my desire, I was more interested in composing anyway and creating and I had really confronted this idea of writing music in our own contemporary voice because I had read this book while I was at Juilliard called The Agony of Modern Music where uh, Henry Pleasance made this argument that all the great masterpieces that we hear today were all written in the popular idiom of their day and I was like yes 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 that's what I got to do I got to write in rock and roll and so I started building these electric violins and getting guitar makers to build them for me and trying to 
to figure out how to play, how to use my classical technique, but to play within a rock idiom. You know, like what would Tchaikovsky do if he was writing a concerto today? Would he write for classical violinist or would he write for electric guitar? And I decided he would write for electric guitar and how would I do that on violin? So it was like a 10 year process of changing my technique, changing the instrument, developing the instrument, building many, many iterations of these violins to try to get it to sound good. Different pedals, different amps, but most importantly, different technique. started holding it really low so that I could sing while I was playing and it changed my bowing style and it changed my left hand vibrato style. And after 10 years of doing that and basically trying to sound like a guitar, I had come up with this alternative way of using my bow that I now teach as strum bowing and, uh, you know, trying to sound like a guitar and being a rhythm guitar while I was singing and doing all that and coming face to face with our pop music and trying to write pop songs and present myself as a rock instrumentalist. As we get to the close of our segment, just getting back to the Beethoven piece, and Beethoven as a composer shares a lot of commonalities with the ideology of the Apollo Chamber players. Beethoven, who always took his audiences on artistic journeys thematically. Of course, this arrangement, which is taken from the fantasy on Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, has a lot of commonality with the Apollo Chamber players as Beethoven had a lot of political engagement with Napoleon and the Napoleonic domination during the European wars. I think that we can say pretty definitively that Beethoven was someone writing for his time and I like to think of him as a musical confrontationalist. And like you said, his Seventh Symphony was a direct result of Napoleon's domination of Europe. And I think is relevant to today with what's going on with the slides toward autocracy and fascism and people denying the Holocaust and that sort of thing. And I think that it really is important to remember that Beethoven is who he was and has the stature that he was, not only because of the genius of his music, but because of what it represented. Tracy Silverman, Matthew Dietrich, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Tracy.